A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Come and show me the magic. Can I take you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the movies. What a scene of your Hollywood song. Hello, and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is 1968's Wonderwall, a trippy blend of surreal visuals and slapstick in which a scatterbrained professor becomes increasingly obsessed with his beautiful model neighbour called Penny Lane. Spying on her through self-made holes in the wall that separates them, the professor dreams psychedelic fantasy sequences that, crucially, are set to music specifically written for the film by one George Harrison. This officially marks it as the first ever solo album released by a Beatle and also the first release for the Beatles' newly formed company Apple Records. But Ed, my first question is, taking all of this information into account, is today going to be the day that they throw it all back to you? <laughs> Come on, I had to do it. Are we really? <laughs> all right, no, fair enough. Uh, Let's just get all of that out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. <laughs> Here's a real question for you. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, what do we think of George's music contribution to this film? Um, and... I guess I was quite interested to to understand what you think about what it suggests about his maturity as a songwriter at this stage. Well, I think uh, taking on a film score is uh, pretty mature in general for any uh, any sort of pop songwriter. Um, so George, by this point, is obviously uh, coming into his own as a songwriter. Um, so he's had sort of significant contributions, particularly on Revolver and uh the white album which i suppose they are recording around the same time yeah he, he i i think like what what you get here is his interest in uh indian music is obviously completely to the fore and i think it's probably kicking off that whole thing where uh, the, <laughs> the general association of sitars with psychedelia you know mm. the the whole thing where in a documentary like uh the sergeant pepper one that we did uh, where they don't have the rights to use the music yes. um or, or indeed anything about the 1960s is you know you'll get the um you'll get the sort of civil unrest in the streets montage you know with sort of vietnam and all that kind of stuff and then uh you'll get the montage of just like hippies sitting in fields uh with sort of painted faces and uh and that that will generally be set to sitars so this is kind of the culmination of that for George, right? Even though he's introduced it earlier on in his career, yeah. Uh, but this, this is kind of those two things coming together, I guess, into one, uh, one, one medium for for him in, yeah. at this point in his career. Yeah. What's quite interesting to me about thinking about him as a mature songwriter taking on a film score mm. is that the Let It Be sessions. I still think of him there as being quite an unconfident writer. Like he still seems to want to check things with the rest of the band, yeah. and he still seems to want to sort of. You know, he wants their input. It, it seems 
a little bit less sure of his footing, I guess. It was some of the songs he's written there. So it's interesting that this, I, I, and also this is one of those things where, this is one of those things that happens in the Beatles timeline where I just can't, like, compute in my head how this happens like alongside other stuff that I know is happening at the time in their, right. you know, in, in their uh, uh, timeline. Right. So sort of in, in the same year. So the year kind of starts off with them going to Rishikesh. Then they come back, as John said, rested and ready to play businessman, um, mm-hmm. set up Apple, record the White Album. Does John get married in 1968? I think he probably does, or 69, I forget. Uh, but anyway, he and Yoko sort of properly become a thing in 1968. And uh, they record two virgins. Uh, anything else? Um, oh, hey Jude. Uh, <laughs> oh, just hey Jude. just that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's a bit. Yeah, a bit like, you look at any of the Beatles years, and you think it, it is absurd how much you have packed in. Yeah, because I can't imagine how much time would have gone into writing and recording, uh, and and the you know whatever work needs to go into re- the release of uh, music like this. Mm. And I just that it's, it's one of those things that always gets bypassed when you have documentaries about uh, the Beatles uh, yeah. of, of this period. Well, yeah, uh, but I, I think, so probably uh, the actual writing of this, I think, I'm not trying to be unkind about the music itself, but I think a lot of it is, he's he's sort of noodled around on something, right? Yeah, and, and, yeah, it, right yeah. and, he's, and he's got he's got some, so I think he went out to the EMI studio in Delhi and he got some, he got some local musicians to, to play on the thing. But uh, yeah, I think the actual writing of it is is probably not a huge undertaking as, you know, I mean, one of the other things that has an arguable claim to be first Beatles solo album is the score for The Family Way, uh, which McCartney did in 1966. That is uh, because it's not, uh, Paul is not credited as the artist, he composed it. Um, But in the same way, I don't think, uh, from what I understand, I think Paul kind of wrote a a bit of a refrain, which he kind of gave to George Martin, who then just Mm. kind of, you know scored bits around it and put the refrain in you know so yeah i think we're probably in danger a little bit of underserving george's role in in the music uh for wonderwall though in, in a sense oh sure that, sure sorry um yeah. uh sorry i don't have to apologize to me <laughs> apologize <laughs> sorry, to george. George Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> but but i i know what you mean i think the music does sound very noodly but there's it's a clear effort involved in the production um uh, uh, of this and i think that one of the things that I was quite interested to to think about when when I was watching this and listening to the music was are, are these songs that um, have been inspired by the film, or is this George Harrison noodling because he knows he can, he's got free reign to do whatever he likes, and this is just kind of something that is interesting and and <laughs> fun for him to do right now, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Like how much of an artistic endeavor is this? Uh, as a as a project that he has undertaken, yeah. Um, versus how much is it as I've been given free reign to do whatever I want for this sort of weird, funny film, yeah. And uh, and and that means I can explore whatever I like musically. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, like you know, Indian music at the moment is sort of where his passion lies. Mm. Um, I, I mean, by the way, this is broadly. I'm sure this isn't completely the case, but more or less, the last time he ever uses a sitar on a record. Um, oh God, is that right? Well, I mean, because the, so, so there's no more sitar, I think I'm right in saying, in any Beatles recordings after Within You, Without You, 1967. Right. Um, George, in general, uh, because he said around this time that he sort of put down the sitar. Yeah. Like, um, and sort of w- went back to playing guitar. And I think that's when he kind of developed that signature slide guitar sound yes, that we sort of know him for. Yeah. There are bits in... 
There are bits of Sitar in Brainwashed, his pop, uh, posthumous album. But yeah, and you know, I, I, I'm sure in his solo albums, maybe there's the odd bit. But generally speaking, he is not. He, he, he's a he's a guitarist. And... So should, should we take it that this musical undertaking of his for this project kind of. Mm-hmm. For want of a better phrase, got it out of his system. <laughs> like, you know what I mean, like, or like it exhausted or exhausted the interest for him a little bit. Like, you know, in in, uh, in that sense, because I think we we associate George Harrison to Sitar a lot throughout the Beatles' career. It's interesting to think that he released this album, which is predominantly only Sitar, and then didn't pick it up much more after that. That's um, that's quite interesting. I think in in terms of playing the sitar himself mm. and, and by the way I, I don't think it maybe he plays a little bit of sitar on this but it, broadly speaking most of it is played by Indian musicians yeah in terms of playing the sitar himself I think he cuts kind of got to the state because and it, to, to master it in the way that Ravi Shankar mastered it you, you are looking at years and years of, of yeah. proper proper practice you know in, in a way that you know you can't really sit down on a sitar and just sort of you know bang out a riff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Smoke on water. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, but I, I think, I mean, it's, but what it, the significant thing uh, all this had really kicked off for him uh, was the, his sort of lifelong quest for spiritual enlightenment, you know, which was, uh, deeply held and sincere and he had for the rest of his life and uh into into his death and reincarnation if uh, uh olivia harrison's account is to be believed um <laughs> it's quite <laughs> wait, wait sorry that, that that makes it sound like i'm, I'm skeptical about it yes uh, yeah uh, i um we should probably save this for when we do the george harrison documentary that that, that claim is made in but it is a fascinating claim yeah uh but anyway yes it was a it, it was a sincere um spiritual quest that he had for his entire course, life yeah. and i think i think he sort of that was the thing that he, he he took from it you know so it would be i think there's lots and lots of 60s musicians who, who just sort of like flirted with things like sitar because it sounded mm. cool mm. uh george properly took um you know in, in, in indian spiritualism uh into his heart and lived by it well i mean he took a lot of cocaine and had a lot of affairs but other than that, that he into his heart as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Going back to the uh, sitar psychedelia thing, that, is that interesting? Do we do we think, or is it of your opinion that George Harrison is directly responsible for that connection between psych- the psychedelic period and sitar music? Like, would that exist without him? Do you think? No, I don't think it would. Uh, I, I think uh, the Beatles and George in particular are uh, responsible for an awful lot of change uh, that they brought to the West. Now, maybe things like this would have happened anyway. And I think we sort of discussed this a bit in the yesterday episode. Mm. Uh, this idea that things like, you know, maybe yoga wouldn't be quite so widespread in the West without the Beatles and George in particular introducing them. The idea of thinking of oneself as spiritual as opposed to religious is uh, it's much easier. It's a much easier thing to express these days. It's a much easier mm. thing for other people to take on board and take seriously. Um, you might be thought of as a bit of a hippie for saying it, you know, but I mean... Uh, it's not as ludicrous as it was. It it would have been in sort of, you know, 1965 when he first found a sitar on the set of Help. The the idea of, I mean, Help is all about, there there is gentle mockery of sort of Eastern spiritual practices in that. 
uh, some of it not so gentle even. Um, and the reason you can make that joke is it was just thought of as weird and outlandish, you know, mm. and even a bit silly maybe, you know. But no, I mean, the, the, these things, uh, these things he and the Beatles absolutely helped to bring into the mainstream, I think. This is kind of, I don't want to just repeat the point that you've already made, but for fear of that being sort of brushed aside, it is actually quite mind-boggling to me that any time there's any, any kind of like trippy, surreal sequence in any film, not completely separate from the Beatles, yeah. sitar music plays, right? That's yeah. just, that is just part of Marshall. That, yeah. That's just yeah. something that I hadn't really considered before, but I think, yeah, I think you're, you're probably right in that. I think it probably is down to George Harrison's influence and, and that interest coming along at the same time as that psychedelic period of the Beatles coming to the fore. Um, coming back to Wonderwall, um, before we venture too far oh, down yeah. the spiritual plane. Yeah. Last question on this before we talk about the films sort of more generally, but do we think that the music that George uh, has produced for this film has kind of gone largely underappreciated? Because I don't feel like it's, you know, the, the fact that it is, uh, the fact that it holds a claim to being the first solo album by a Beatle, mm. um, it never gets talked about in the same way that his first actual solo album is post Beatles split, mm-hmm. um, all things must pass. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, you know, with the other, Beatles. In fact, actually, a better comparison might be Two Virgins. Yeah. Because that still gets mentioned a lot as part of the Beatles story. Yes. Wonderwall just doesn't yeah. at all. And the same with electronic sound that George made in 69 as well, right. which is just to him and a Moog synthesizer. Yeah, doesn't it, it doesn't get talked about all that much. Um, Do you really think that's just because it's convenient to not include it in a Beatles story that predominantly focuses on McCartney and Lennon? No, I think it is more because the music itself that is being made is, you know, you, 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 can't, commercial. you can't hum it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, although, you know, there are some melodies that he, it, it, Wonderwall is arguably a bit of an exception, Wonderwall music, the album is arguably a bit of an exception to that. I mean, so that there are certainly bits uh, that you can hum, you know, and bits that are that do kind of stick in the mind. Mm. So because this is the interesting thing about the Beatles is that every time they try and do something avant-garde, they do it very successfully. But the fact but they just can't help but put melodies in it because it's just how they are. Melodies just pour out of them. So, yeah, there are melodies in. uh, So the guitar riff that is sort of very identifiably Eric Clapton playing is that's sort of very uh, that's kind of uh, very memorable. That's a real standout moment in the soundtrack because it's not like the rest of the music that's been played up until that point. Right, yeah, exactly. And uh, there's one called uh, Party Seekum as well, um, which is quite memorable. There's one called Cowboy Music, which which is very sort of... You know, that yeah. that kind of cowboy thing. You know, and like... So he, he is like within this... Um, I suppose this is the thing where it's like, if someone says to you, as the director apparently did to George, um, say, just just do what you want. Because mm. um, George had said, well, I don't really know how to do a, a film score. And um, so, yeah, the director said, just just do whatever you want, you know. And so I think that certainly leads it to be a bit disjointed in terms of how the music is used in the film, whereabouts it appears. But uh, he could be forgiven for just... Uh, for it all just being sort of noodling and very very self indulgent, yeah, yeah. you know. But actually, you know, there are melodies in it. He's he's obviously expressing a kind of sincere 
passion for Indian music at the time, you know, and I think that comes through. Yeah. I mean, he could equally just be excused for just writing 90 minutes of 12 bar blues, right? Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, yeah. just doing that because the whole conceit in the film is just the neighbours are playing loud music. Like it's, it's entirely yeah. on him to determine what kind of music that is. Well, that's true, that's isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's a good point, actually, because, yeah, the it's, so one of the things about the film is um, there are um, quite long periods where there's no dialogue. Mm. And so the music like ha- has to do some of the heavy lifting. Um, but you're right that, well, that could have been any kind of music. But also what what's happening is that um, the main character, Oscar Collins, is a uh, slightly straight-laced, although perhaps with some eccentricities, uh, scientist who lives on his own, who discovers a hole in his wall, uh, looks through it and sees that his um, neighbours are sort of uh, the, the beautiful people, uh, young Londoners who are uh, part of the, the what, what would you even call that scene? I was about to say the psychedelic scene, but that's not well, even a the, thing. Well, he, at one point, the boyfriend calls it out as saying that his girlfriend is part of the modelling scene. Uh, okay. So like modelling scene, fashion industry, you know, that that's sort of... Right. It's, just, it's specifically that, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what what he sees when he spies on them uh, through the holes in his wall is a lot of not even necessarily drug taking, but the sort of the, the sort of parties at which you uh, you imagine drug taking is going on. Mm. They're all tuning in, turning on, and dropping out. So I suppose in George's mind, writing a score for this, he's he must be thinking, well, uh, I mean, you know, he's. Um, He's been part of this scene himself for so long. Yeah, that's um, true. To the extent that actually by 1968, he's almost sort of, uh, I think by this point, he's uh, stopped taking LSD. Um, he's had that experience where he went to California and found, as he says in the anthology, loads of horrible spotty kids on drugs. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I think he's sort of gone off it, you know. Um, so by this point, he's almost sort of writing a, a score for... A film about a scene that he's more or less rejected, you know, mm. um, and uh, so yeah. But I, I suppose he's he's trying to write um, sort of general weirdness as opposed to noise that is disturbing and loud necessarily. But do you think? Because you mentioned before that this is um, this would have become shortly after Rishikesh, yeah. And is do you think there's anything in him looking at a film like this where the idea is that his neighbours are being loud, they're having parties and taking drugs? And his most recent experience of that kind of thing for him is that is accompanied by sitar music. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, you know, yeah, is it literally yeah. like, you know, from experience, like, you know, the last time uh, we were all hanging out and taking drugs and, uh, you know, having essentially sort of like party atmosphere. Yeah. There was that kind of music played. Well, I think, I think it's more probably that um, he... He has helped to establish and define this scene uh, mm. more than pretty much anyone else. I mean, he he he's established this by putting "within you, without you" on Sergeant yeah. Pepper. You yeah. know, so this is what even at this point, I, I guess people are thinking of Sergeant Pepper as like the sort of defining statement on the sort of flower power era, if mm. you like. Um, and his one song on it is uh, is a, a sort of an Indian classical mixed with English classical. You know, and there there are points in the soundtrack for this film where I swear it feels like it's going to go into within without you. Like there are moments <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. where, and I swear, and I'm I'm sure that it's just because of my uh, lack of you know uh, understanding of the 
no doubt um centuries of back catalogue of sitar music that i'm just unfamiliar with but um for me it's i hear some sitar music it's like i swear that's going to go into the other piece of sitar music that i know within without you but there is there are specific times where it feels like there is like a syncopated rhythm rhythm that is being played at the same time as a sitar uh melody over the top Mm. and it's like this feels to me like it's a very similar segue into what that song uh becomes on the album yeah I guess what's quite interesting to me is the idea that George was in the first place first approached to write uh, the music for this film Yeah. Uh, in theory in order to accept that offer he would have had to have an understanding of the film and what it was trying to say and do and then say yes I want to be a part of this first of all what do you think of, of the film I guess and what's he trying to say and, and I, I guess I'm trying to work out how it might align to the Beatles at that point in their career yeah. and why they might be interested, why George in particular obviously might be interested in, in being a part of that as a creative project when it's so surreal. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, surrealism is, is something that they're all sort of interested in to an extent, mm-hmm. you know, so what, one of the sort of main themes in the film is it's, it's, it's sort of exploring this idea as magic Christian does as well. Um, uh, Straight laced British society being disrupted by by the the beautiful people you know mm. young young people who are who re- reject social norms and whatnot um so that's kind of what is is that sort of thing is taking place within oscar's flat you know this yeah. this uh this whole thing where and and it's not just that he is um this thing is kind of starting to obsess him he has a sort of prurient interest in it so you know i mean this idea of sort of um, being horrified by what the young people are getting up to, but also that you uh, are secretly titillated by it, you know, in the same way as the British tabloid press do to this day, it will sort of affect to be outraged by sort of women's behavior while also uh, putting a picture of them in a bikini uh, next to it to illustrate the picture. I don't even know whether he seems in in the film though to be particularly pretend to be particularly outraged by it he just you know it's not a uh, at no point i think does he as a character feel like he is um judging his neighbors at all he, mm. he's just i i it, it translates to me as like a longing yeah. um for for that uh, but I, I completely agree with you in this instance it's, it's clearly about this sort of uh british straight lacedness like you say mm. versus the free-spirited you know young hippie scene but uh i I really kind of enjoyed that metaphor in this film Mm. and it is very very like it's it's really in your face it is this is a film that wears its metaphor on its sleeve a lot Um, right it's you know there's there's a lot of heavy-handed symbolism in the film but it's kind of i kind of enjoy that about the movie because like that's kind of how i like my symbolism i like it where it's it's very obvious and i can see it I can know what it's trying to say and what it's trying to tell me, yeah. but I can still sort of, you know, scratch my chin and nod my head and be like, "Ah, oh, yes, I understood that reference." You know, <laughs> like you know, it makes me feel clever for for watching the film and being like, oh, "I understand what you're trying to do there." You know, yeah, um, good old fashioned, good, good old fashioned <laughs> British symbolism. Yes, exactly. You know, before, but like stuff like you know, because but I do think it works really well. I think there's there's a lot of you know the, the overall the idea of this the Wonder Wall in itself being uh, this object through which 
Oscar enjoys this sort of voyeuristic experience yeah. of um, this other part of life that he ultimately fantasizes about. Um, but also this idea that as he becomes more obsessed with his neighbor, he sort of chips away the new holes um, in that wall. And that ends up almost, you know, in turn chipping away at his own persona. And he becomes a little bit more eccentric and a little bit more sort of further removed from his sort of intellectual pursuits. But then also other things like the fantasy sequences. I loved all of those. I loved him fighting Superman with a big pen. Um, I loved him being stabbed with a giant lipstick. Like, you know, all these things are sort of, there's this, I don't know, they kind of ultimately play into this idea of like male inadequacy, even sexual inadequacy, you know, versus this, his, the, the object of his affection, the neighbor and her current studly boyfriend. Mm. You know, I think, I think you can on a surface level, think of this film much like Magic Christian where there's a lot of silly slapstick stuff happening but yeah. I do think there's a lot of work happening under the surface which Magic Christian did not have at all yeah it, 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 I think it's sort of it's getting to something that's like quite key in the British psyche I suppose uh, this idea it, it, who was it who said like an, an Englishman will consider his life a success if he can get through it without ever being publicly embarrassed um, <laughs> but yeah I, th- I think there's something uh, there's something in that where this is sort of what it's saying. This thing about being British, where it's it, it's politeness and there's a, a straight lacedness and uh, just not wanting to sort of upset the apple cart, I suppose. Um, and and it, and actually, because this could be read as a story about a guy who who is uh, you know a, a peeping tom, you know. It's mm-hmm. a, but actually, his interest in her is not particularly well is not particularly sexual there is a there is a scene in which um she and her boyfriend are having sex um and like oscar's reaction to it is that like there's a little montage where he's making like more and more holes uh, <laughs> as quickly as he can in order to look through from lots of different angles that's kind of played comically and so i'm not saying he has no sexual interest in her but moreover there is as you say a, a, a longing for a life mm. that's um a life that he doesn't have and uh, and it's not even just about loneliness necessarily it's about about sort of british repression like uh you know this is the life i could have if only i was prepared to let myself go in some way you know and i suppose that's one of the things about why um this period of british cultural life was such it was so revolutionary is that you, you had all these people who were willing to break these norms that had been established so long ago and, uh, and 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 maintained, you know, throughout British society for decades, for generations, you know. And there's there's a thing about being British that is, you know, not being able to lose one's inhibitions necessarily, you know. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's sort of trying what it's trying to get at. I think the thing that I was surprised by it was that. The film actually handles that in a very mature way. It doesn't seem like it on yeah. the surface, but actually, there's there's a lot of, you know, those those, those things about what it means, you know, to, to be able to be at the centre of that kind of cultural movement in in order to make a film like this, and then decide to tell it from the point of view of uh, an older man mm. who then is made to feel insecure as a result of that movement happening like yeah. on his doorstep i think that's quite a mature take on on that yeah. what it means for how he feels about himself his self-identity and 
I, I think all of those things are absolutely present in that in that movie. Yeah. And then right through to you know, the actual the actual culmination of the story is a suicide attempt. Yeah. It, it can almost get lost a little bit in the sort of um, overt surreal visuals of the film and the sort of the trippy nature of it. But uh, ultimately, this is about him spying on his neighbour and then realising that she's actually not happy at the centre of, of, of that whole scene. Yeah. Uh, to the extent that she tries to take her own life. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's, you know, that's quite a, uh, obviously a very serious take on on that sort of cultural movement. Yeah. As explored in this film. It's just quite, I was quite surprised by that. And I think I, you know, approaching this film, having not seen it before, not really known what to expect. Yeah. I think halfway through, you know, we've name-checked it a couple of times, but halfway through I was I was thinking, oh, this is just, a, this is just like Magic Christian. This is, this is how I sort of see this um, film behaving. But it wasn't until further on in the movie I realised it was doing something much more sophisticated yeah I think so uh, because I think also yeah I think there's something to be said about w- w- women's role um, and uh, how they fit into um, the, the whole revolution that was going on in the 1960s because mm-hmm. um, there is a there's a sexual revolution going on as well uh, people are becoming um, much more let's say fair about sex there, you know, there, there are birth control pills now. You know, this is this is quite a new thing. There's also the fact that you know, you think about songs like "For No One." There's the kind of and uh, "Babies in Black" as mm-hmm. well. Um, uh, there's a sort of hint at a darkness uh, in in a free spirited woman. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Like that, it, it, like that she it, it, she may and I suppose you know Eleanor Rigby as, as well. I suppose you know the character. Is you know wearing a face that she keeps in a jar by the door, that, you know, and who is it for? There's this whole idea of um, showing a certain face to the world, but perhaps there's a sadness behind it. Mm. And you know, that's um, uh, Wonderwall is kind of exploring that too with the character of Penny Lane, you know, and this and this is uh, Jane Birkin playing her as well, by the way, you know. So this is um, Jane Birkin who next year would team up with Serge Gansborg to record. Uh, is it called Je Tim? Mm-hmm. Why non plus? You know, and so you know this is um, uh, absolutely iconic in terms of the sexual revolution that was going on. That was yeah. you know that uh, that song was banned all over the place. You know for being too sexy. You know, <laughs> like, uh, uh, like me. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, all right said Fred. For you know. <laughs> she she really yes. was the right said Fred of her day. <laughs> This film being made now, the the temptation would be to make Oscar Collins's character more sinister. Yes, you know, because that that is kind of how these kind of more voyeuristic films play out now. They yeah. are thrillers, um, and it's more about you never know who's watching you. Yeah, but it's it's interesting that there's no sort of hint of malice that comes out in this film. It's it's just one of sort of longing and anxiety, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you think about how a similar uh, thing plays out in a film like American Beauty where uh, Kevin Spacey is obsessed mm-hmm. with his daughter's friend. But a lot of... It's much more about the sort of suffocation of... Um, the self in a way, the sort of, you know, the, the American middle class self, you mm-hmm. know, and like try, trying to keep up appearances of yeah. the, you know, the, the privet hedge and all the rest of it, you know. Um, whereas this uh, seems to be less, in a funny way, um, 
they're not particularly using it to say anything about Oscar's character himself. They're using Oscar's character to say something about society instead. You know. Talking of which, uh, we should, I guess, try to understand what the movie is trying to say about that uh, based on how it decides to end its film. Mm-hmm. So I think if we're looking at the film being reflective of society at the time, I think it's interesting that the film goes down this road of um, <laughs> down this road of <laughs> uh, goes down this road of suicide. You could say that all the roads that led us there were winding. Um, <laughs> it was not, that was really not intentional. Sorry, um, uh, I just constantly got the lyrics playing back. Yeah, I'm going um, to have to think of one before the end of the episode. <laughs> just just to round things off. Yeah, uh, yeah, but like you know, it goes down this road of uh, exploring this. The idea that Penny Lane is uh, unhappy to the extent that she wants to take her own life. Yeah. But also then that um, the, the film, I think the film's ending is open to interpretation. And I think it's important that the film doesn't make a conclusion there because um, you could read the the, the the ending that the film presents, which is one that Oscar actually saved her life. Uh, his colleagues are reading the story in the newspaper about how he saved her life and they all, all applaud him as he comes back into the lab. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's quite uh, easy to... It's quite easy to suggest that that is just another one of his fantasy sequences Yeah, um, in that moment. Yeah. So therefore, like, you know, I guess the film maybe is ultimately making some kind of statement on, you know, the fantasy being better than the reality. Because that's that's ultimately what we that, that's ultimately what Penny um, discovers as trying to be part of the model scene and actually finding herself unhappy as a result of it. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. I think I think there is. So I mean, one of the things about the ending is um, the uh, the fact that she makes a suicide attempt is a um, that is a proper narrative beat. You yeah, know? that is a, a a bid to take the story somewhere, which up until this point. Um, it hasn't done an awful lot with. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a lot of, as we said when we were talking about Magic Christian, a lot of the sort of psychedelic cinema of this period seems to be characterised by uh, a, a sort of discarding of narrative and it, in its place, a lot of sort of seemingly unconnected scenes. Um, mm-hmm. Not, not so yeah. much un, un, unconnected, but where the story is not necessarily being moved on at all times. It's quite happy to be sort of meditative and to let you uh, just sit and think, you know, for for quite a while, you know. Um, uh, The suicide attempt is um, a a story, you know, and uh, and it works in that way, you know. It's also extremely, uh, I thought, very clever when you then, when Oscar then finds himself in a situation where he is uh, spying on, uh, someone trying to resuscitate Penny mm. and he's giving mouth to mouth in a way that mimics how he was watching the earlier sex scene. Yeah. It's a much sort of darker um, revisit of that earlier scene. Yeah. Um, again, I think just speaks of the film's surprising sophistication I think yeah. to be able to make those kind of callbacks and, and to have like a, a darker lens, darker filter on, on that, given the, um, the events I think is, um, is, is quite, uh, yeah, just surprisingly smart thing that the film does. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, for him, um, I suppose he's in a position where he could be sort of facing ruin by um, it coming out that he's been obsessing over his young neighbour, 
It's not the sort of thing a gentleman in his position does, of course. You know, R- remind me how does it work? Like he sits, so he he has he has gone into her flat, mm-hmm. uh, dressed as a circus ringmaster for some reason, <laughs> yeah. which is fine. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's one of the things that you just don't question. In, in a no, movie like no, this. fine. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, so while there, uh, she makes a suicide attempt. Um, he sort of tries to revive her, but then doesn't he sort of it, it alerts someone else to call an ambulance yes. in some way? Yeah. But I forget, does he do it in such a way whereby it can't be identified that he was in her flat or yeah, something like yeah, that? Yeah, right? I think so. Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. So he he's not in her flat at the time when someone comes along to actually save, save her life. He's still watching from yeah. uh, the other side. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Yeah. I suppose you know because that's that's almost his only what well, could be yeah. his only interaction with reality in you know when he actually crosses the wall if you like yeah, yeah, go, yeah. you know on the other side of the wall um you know who's to say what's real and what's not you know yes, on exactly, which side yeah. of the wall I suppose it's kind of you know what it's driving at I, I don't know I, I will say again I just I felt like all of this stuff like there's exactly exactly what you just said like this idea of there being a, a wall between reality and fantasy uh, mm. between British uh, intellectualism and free-spirited love movement, like, mm. um, and it being a literal wall. Yeah. And like, even to the extent that when he decides to really go like whole hog with this pursuit of spying on his neighbour, and in order to do that, he like actively cuts out um, a canvas painting, like you're stripping back like mm. this this sort of art uh, sort of you know art facade that's hanging on the wall to yeah. be able to get through to the the bare bones uh, brickwork behind it in order to define I think it's all about stuff where he's actually having to sort of cut through those those kind of boundaries and barriers and stuff. And I realise this is like metaphor one oh one. But again, it just satisfies that brain itch that I have where yeah. I'm watching something and it's like, I get all of this and I'm quite happy that I get all of this and <laughs> it doesn't have to be subtle. Right. I just, I'm just pleased that I get it. We talked a bit about George Harrison and and his musical contribution. I think it was interesting that in addition to that, pen, the, the, the neighbour was called Penny Lane, mm. that feels like a unnecessary connection to make to the Beatles. Yeah. Like George Harrison's enough. You don't, you know, yeah. there isn't any other sort of overt connection to the Beatles. So it felt like an odd choice, I thought, for me. Yeah. One of the strange things about it, or something that I picked up on, was uh, there's a character called Young Man, um, who okay. is who's the guy who who comes over to Oscar's flat to sort of borrow ice and things like that. Oh, yeah, he's, the, yeah. he's the boyfriend, basically. Yeah, yeah. And um, he I, and I looked him up because his voice was dubbed. It seemed to me. I thought so as well. Yes, uh, with a Liverpudlian accent. Right. Yeah yeah. 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 And he sounded an awful lot like uh, Peter Serafinovitz, weirdly, like. <laughs> That that kind of um, uh, that like it's quite gentle uh, yeah. Liverpool accent. Um, I looked him up, and the guy's it's called Ian Quarrier, and he's Canadian. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So presume so either uh, maybe it's him, or maybe it's somebody else. But the voice is being dubbed, or at least a decision has been made here to have the guy talk in a slight uh, to to sound a bit like a beetle. Yes, right? is, is yeah. basically what's happening there. And I thought, why has that choice been made? Is that because we think the audience would sort of generally associate a, a Scouse accent with hippies, or mm. you know, with the sort that sort of swinging 
ironically swinging London scene. Um, you know, just that maybe it's an easy shorthand for an audience. Say, ah, yes, this is um, um, hippies all sound like the Beatles, don't yeah. they? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but also, or, or to be more cynical about it, is it just trying to capitalise on the George Harrison connection? Like, if yeah. at a point when you know you've got George uh, writing music for the film and you're going to overdub the actor, like, yeah. I wonder if that decision is made after that sort of deal is struck and you're then gearing the film more towards uh, a fan base or, or, you know, an audience that have that kind of interest. Quite possibly, yeah, yeah. I think um, uh, another thing um, that I discovered uh, upon researching the film after watching it was that um, the uh, there, there is a Dutch design collective called The Fool yep. who did a lot of the art design uh, for the movie. Do you know what their connections to the Beatles are? Uh, yes. Uh, the So they had the shop down in Notting Hill, I think it was. And so they did a lot of artwork, including uh, painting John's psychedelic Rolls-Royce, yes. painting uh, Paul's uh, like piano that he uses for Magical Mystery Tour to this day. Mm. They painted uh, maybe a mural on George's wall at his house in Kinforns, I want to say, something like that. I heard that they also painted his Mini Cooper. Oh, yes. So maybe that's right. And maybe his, uh, you know, the the Fender Stratocaster in the sort of pink psychedelic colours. Yeah, I, he he did that himself. Did he? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. I, I, I'm sure I've read things about how he, uh, he that one night, just basically just stripped his guitar down and, and painted that himself. Wow. And he turned up the next day and was like, this is how my guitar looks now. <laughs> Deal with it, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> wow, brilliant. Um, but yeah, so interesting. No Beatles connection there for you. Uh, mm-hmm. Other than that, there are a lot of apples in the film. Yes. I don't know if that's, you know, again, that's a true, pointed thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, you could point to obvious symbolism, like you know, the apple being a symbol of knowledge, uh, of, of, you know, uh, original sin as well, mm-hmm. uh, and temptation. Yeah. Um, but also just Apple records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then at the point it was being filmed, would any would they have known that was Apple a thing? Would they have known about it? Yeah, because I, I think this because in terms what we're told about how George recorded the uh, score or wrote the score is that he was given the film to watch and sort of had a stopwatch and uh, sort of timed the bits where he was going to put music in. So this has been made. I don't know if it's already been completely made before George's involvement. But certainly that his his music work is the last thing to happen. It seems. Mm. And I'm not sure of the timeline, but I think uh, I don't know that the apple might be a genuine coincidence. But yeah, yeah. because it is a, a properly green apple of the kind. Yes. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, and it becomes red later on. Actually, he, he starts eating a red apple later on when he's yeah. like to eat or not to eat. Yeah, um, yeah, interesting. And also, we haven't mentioned it before, but I did think it was interesting that actually the the um, uh, the budget for the music for the film was really because it's a low budget film mm. so the budget for the film i think for, sorry for the music of the film was something like 600 pounds okay but george harrison stumped up fifteen thousand of his own money to be able to actually do the uh to complete the project um in the way that he wanted to and you know hire out uh it was actually at abbey road studios and mm-hmm. uh, hire the musicians he wanted and, and stuff which is brilliant because you know you can imagine like a director coming to him and saying uh, I want you to write music for the film, do whatever you like and I put it in. Mm. And then for George to be like, fine, I will invest 
almost as much money as the, enti- the film's entire budget to yeah. make that happen for you. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. As a director, you've hit a goldmine there. Right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. But he, he must have been passionate about yeah. it. And he, and he must have cared about it creatively. Like, it's, sort of, it's interesting to think about um, in Get Back, whether having that conversation, uh, you know, and George is saying, well, you know, I've got all these songs, I could go and do a solo album. Yeah. And, you know, and they seem to be... Um, almost come into this accord of like you know we can all go off and do our own thing and then get back together and be Beatles every now and again but you know George is not the only one because the rest have done it as well by this point but George George has kind of already done this he's kind of already set this template because he's recorded Wonderwall music and he's recorded Electronic Sound and you know and and sort of come back and and um being a Beatle again you know and so yeah. it, it it is. It, it's nice that he can sort of go off and be genuinely passionate about something, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. And, and I'm sure that a big, you know, I I kind of knew the answer to my own question when I uh, raised it earlier about how does this sit alongside the view of George a year later in the Let It Be sessions, being more unsure of himself as a songwriter mm-hmm. and leaning on the other band members to to ask for their advice and how to complete songs and, and not necessarily being too forthcoming or too pushy with his own his own music and stuff he just seems a bit more sort of um more insecure about that and i think the answer is because he's in the band with those band members yeah whereas here it is a completely separate project he can you know he and it's a dream project for him really if he's being told yeah. do whatever you like and i'll use it no matter what yeah. like that that's free restraint there's no you know this idea of him being uncertain about how to write a film score for another project might have actually put paid to it early on but actually being given that artistic freedom to do whatever he want would would have sort of played exactly into what he needed i think at that time to yeah be to be able to do this yeah i think i think also that it's a um it's, it's instrumental too so he's not sort of writing songs yeah in you know and in, in the same way so i suppose that certainly when if he's writing a song and uh, he's in the same room as John or Paul, it kind of makes sense to say, hey, what do you reckon to this or whatever? Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, whereas I, I'm sure he felt comfortable enough with sort of writing instrumental uh, stuff, particularly Indian stuff, that that was kind of his thing, you know, and that he could just uh, go off and do that and didn't particularly feel like he needed, you know, anyone else's guidance on it. Yeah, absolutely. But also, like, I know how we've talked about it being um, sort of a, a project where he was able to just sort of noodle uh, a bit, but mm. I, I'm sure, like you say, it would have been a, a real passion project for him. Um, and it was, you know, it did serious business at the time. It's, it's, it's um, I say business, not in terms of box office, but it was a success at Cannes. And it's only subsequently that the film failed to pick up a distribution deal, so it's got lost, and there hasn't really been a, sort of a, a proper full release of the of the film yeah but but at the time i think it was you know it would have been seen as a serious endeavor um so like him noodling on on the film which he absolutely does Mm. um i think it's still an artistic choice um rather than one where he feels like he can do something a bit half-hearted which which that might suggest so yeah I, i think um uh, I guess my main takeaway from the film is that uh, I was pleasantly surprised by uh, how mature it was, given given sort of the, the sensibilities it wears on its sleeve a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I was, I was quite impressed with actually the, the thought and consideration that had gone into exploring relatively sophisticated themes uh, in the film. Uh, and, and actually, as a result of that, really loved it. Wasn't expecting to, but yeah. really, really enjoyed watching it. Yeah. I, I, you know, in, in preparation for this, I, I watched it a second time as well, and um, I just really enjoyed the heck out of it. Yeah, uh, it was yeah. really good. What are your thoughts on uh, the film? Uh, did you did you gel with it as much as I did? I, I, not as much as you did, but I did enjoy it. Yeah, and uh, and I think that the fact that it is just it has something to say. And it is, uh, tra- it's not always, it, it is occasionally a bit of a blunt instrument in uh, that metaphor, as you say, you know, unlike you, I prefer a subtler metaphor, you know, <laughs> uh, a, a continental metaphor. You know. <laughs> but, but, um, but no, I, I think uh, I, I, I like, I, I think it is nuanced, um, but it uh, occasionally is uh, a bit of a blunt instrument in what it's trying to express. But it is trying to say something and overall it succeeds in saying that thing in the same way that you know when we were talking about the supposed anti-capitalist message of the magic christian hmm. it, it it doesn't particularly it, it does you can see that it is trying to do that but it is not succeeding it loses its way quickly doesn't it absolutely yeah, yeah. and wonderful and after all uh <laughs> <laughs> wonderful uh <laughs> Basically achieves what it sets out to achieve. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to wrap things up there. Okay. Uh, I think our listeners um, hopefully would have approached this episode expecting uh, uh, at least a a few Oasis puns on here. I'm sure they've heard it all before, but it never really had a doubt. Um, (laughs) Hopefully you have enjoyed this episode. Um, If you have, please do write us a review or get in touch with us on the social media platforms. You can reach us at Beatles Films Pod on all of those uh, usual viral spaces. And and otherwise, we'll be back again next week with another episode. Um, so hopefully you listen then and we'll see you then. Thanks and bye-bye. Bye-bye.